I know that in this fine collection of brothers and sisters in Christ, there's no one here with us this morning that is impatient with God. But you may have friends that are. You may have family members that are impatient with God. And I ask you to listen to this Palm Sunday sermon for them. It may be helpful for you to have this to share uh, with them. As we consider the whole concept of being impatient with God, we have to be mindful that God is over time. He is transcendent. He invented time so that we would not be confused about the linear, linear progression of events. So God invented time, stepped into time in the person of Jesus Christ in the incarnation. But God is over time. He's bigger than time. He controls time. He's on time. In 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 9, mockery of God's so-called lateness, so-called lateness, is addressed head-on in 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 9. Listen, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Yes, back then, in the time of the triumphal entry, some people were impatient with God. Some had written off God's promises because to them, God's promises were slower in coming than they had expected. But the good word for us this morning, if we would be honestly in the quietness of our minds, impatient with God, the good news is that God is always right on time. God is always right on time. He is never late. He is always right on time. It may not appear to you this morning that your marriage can stand one more day of your prayers for your spouse's repentance to take place, but know that God is always right on time. It may seem to you this morning that your bank account cannot go another business day without a large deposit of money dropping out of heaven for you to invest in the royal bank account you have. But realize that the prodigal son in Jesus' parable 
came back to the farm right on time. This morning it may look to you like your rebellious teenager cannot afford one more weekend's worth of high-handed sinning against God's principles and promises for blessed living, but realize that God is always right on time. It may feel this morning to you like your empty arms cannot possibly go one more week without you and your wife holding a baby for which you pray. But God is always right on time. In Palm Sunday, he was right on time. In your life, in my life, he is always right on time. Leading up to the time of Jesus Christ's incarnation, the Jewish people had endured a total of over 580 years of foreign military occupation. And the last 140 plus years of that period of time was a time when the Jews were under the heavy boot heel of Rome. And Rome stepped on their throats, as it were, with vengeance and unreasonability. The Jews of Jesus' day groaned under Rome's relentless domination of their everyday lives. Rome collected exorbitant taxes from them. Rome demanded that her emperor be worshipped as though God by them. Roman armies' needs meant that any Jew at any day at any time could be compelled to carry a Roman soldier's backpack for one mile in any direction that was necessary. Not surprisingly, many Jews living at the time of Jesus' birth were fed up. They were impatient with God. They were doubting God's promise to send them a delivering Messiah. And their exasperation with God and his timing manifested itself by some of them excluding God from their thinking. Sound familiar? Today, many persons, many Christian persons, honestly, secretly, are ticked off with God's slowness to do something that they want him to do. And these believers who grow impatient with God long enough fence, or they try to, fence God out of their lives. And so these stop reading their Bibles. And these stop assembling with others of like precious faith. And these stop praying. Persons doubting God's punctuality have also been known to fall into sin by taking matters into their own hands. The Old Testament example of King Saul is a prime one. 
Remember when the priest Samuel was delayed in coming to sacrifice on behalf of Israel, the king saw an impatient sin by taking matters into his own hands and sacrificing the animal, which he had no business sacrificing. Don't ever do this. Don't ever deceive yourself into thinking because God is slower than you want him to be, that you are justified in doing what it seems best for you to do, even if that means disobeying the scriptures. Don't ever do that. And young person, in the sound of my voice, don't get engaged to a non-believer. Don't marry a unsaved fiance. Don't live together before you're married. Don't be sexually intimate with someone who is not your spouse. Because you think God is somehow late in providing you with a godly mate. Don't do any of that. Because God is always right on time. And to the financially strapped persons here today, Maybe you're a single parent, or maybe you're out of work, or maybe you're on the brink of personal bankruptcy due to overspending. Don't break the law to find money. Don't think about running away from your responsibilities or even taking your own life. Because to you, it seems like God is tardy in providing the funds you need to get out of the hole which you've dug Talk to your creditors, but supremely and far more importantly, first talk to God. Trust him to be on time, to help you, to provide for you, because he's always right on time. This Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter week, the Sunday we remember the Lord Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem riding on a young uh, donkey, are you aware that the very first Palm Sunday came right on time according to God's prophecy? Are you aware this morning that the very first Palm Sunday is proof positive that our God is always right on time? Please turn with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel. It's about 60% of the way through the Old Testament. If your Bible has a table of contents, you can turn there to help you find the Old Testament book of Daniel. Our text for this sermon is Daniel 9, 24 through 27. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. As you're turning to Daniel chapter 9, I want to give you historical context. At the time of Daniel, the nation of Judah was in Babylonian captivity as a judgment from God. And God back then told his man Daniel, who had risen to the highest echelons of civil service in Babylon, God told his civil servant follower, Daniel, all about the timing of the first Palm Sunday. Isn't that amazing? Don't we serve a God who's sovereign and in control and worthy, therefore, of our trust and praise? About 550 years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem, God revealed to Daniel the very time when Jesus would be presented as Israel's king on the very first Palm Sunday. Are you in Daniel 9? 
Look at verses 24 to 27 with me. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. We're going to go over the prophetic verses here, phrase by phrase, to seek to understand what God was predicting to Daniel. But before we dive in, please remember that these verses I have just read were written over 500 years to the Jews before Christ was even born. And in verse 24, a verse that is chalk-packed of prophecy, in verse 24, God told Daniel that God intended to chasten his people, the Jews, for at least 70 more seven-year periods after the conclusion of the Babylonian captivity. See it again in verse 24. 70 weeks I have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, etc. 70 weeks is 70 times 7 or 490 years. God was saying back then that he would pour out his judgment on Israel in general and on Jerusalem in particular for another 490 years after the Jews were released from Babylonian captivity. Stick with me. It'll be worth it. All this is to show us that any impatience with God which we might entertain is inappropriate because God is always right on time. He was in time sending his son, the Lord Jesus, to Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, and God is going to be right on time in your life. Whatever you face, it's never late. Keep praying. Keep trusting. Keep waiting like the police officer in the radar trap looking for speeders. That police officer in the, in the cruiser has the radar gun poised and ready. He's waiting to catch someone who's exceeding the speed limit. Be that way with God because he's always right on time. Be expectant. Be patient. Be prayerful. So what are we saying? We're saying that God told Daniel 550 years before Christ that Messiah would be presented and present in Israel as a nation within 490 years from the time that Judah was released from Babylon. Verse 24 is saying a lot more than that, though. 
Verse 24 is stating six things future, all of which will happen after the 490 years. Six things. And all six of these prophetic events can only take place after the second coming return of Christ, after Jesus, the Lord Jesus, sets up his literal kingdom on earth for a thousand years. We call it the millennium. The answer to Jesus' model prayer when he prayed to the Father, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm looking forward to the millennial reign of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem's throne. When God's will will be done on earth as God's will is currently being done in heaven. How is God's will currently being done in heaven? Completely, thoroughly, immediately, without opponent. I'm looking forward to that. And when you look at verse 24, you see six things being predicted for that future kingdom time of King Jesus. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So let's go through these six uh, predictions about the kingdom that's to come. Number one, Israel's transgression will be finished. That is, Israel's rebellion against God's rule will be over. Israel will only accept God's rule over her when Israel believes on Christ in a personal way that Jesus Christ, Yeshua, is Messiah. This will be in the millennium. Second thing predicted for the millennium, Israel's sin will be ended. That is, Israel's daily sins will stop once Christ is ruling earth for a thousand wonderful years yet future. Third prediction, Israel's iniquity will be atoned for. Jesus Christ atoned for Israel's and all of the world's sins, of course, on the cross when he died and shed his innocent blood, but that atonement will not actually be applied to Israel's believers until the nation of Israel finds herself in the future kingdom of Christ on earth. Fourth prediction, still in verse 24, everlasting righteousness will be brought in. Israel in particular And the world in general has never known everlasting righteousness. (laughs) Read the newspaper. Watch the news. Read history. There has never been a time as yet when God's perfect righteousness had a starting point and then had an infinity long arrow that never ends. That's what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes to Mount Olivet Sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem for a thousand years, suppresses evil with an iron scepter. And the righteousness that Jesus Christ establishes in his future kingdom will go on into forever the new heaven and the new earth. This verse 24 is full of millennial prophecies. Number five, vision and prophecy will be sealed up. The revelation that came through vision or prophecy will no longer be uh, a concern once Israel is uh, in the kingdom and experiencing all that the kingdom enjoys. No need for vision or prophecy in that kingdom. And sixth prediction in verse 24 is that the most holy place in the kingdom will be anointed. 
The most holy place in the future kingdom is the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. By the way, you do know that rabbis in the rabbis' tunnels and other places have been studying the Old Testament scriptures to know the dimensions, the specifications for the future rebuilt temple of the Jews in Jerusalem. Furthermore, they've gathered all the building materials that the Old Testament specifies, the types of wood necessary. It's all ready. They're ready to rebuild the temple in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And they will. The most holy place in Jesus' kingdom will be anointed. The Jewish temple in Jerusalem, when Jesus Christ has come for a second time and established his thousand-year rule, then the Jewish temple in Jerusalem will be consecrated, set apart from all sin and useful for God's service in that kingdom. Now, I know this is a bit of a delicate or intricate sermon, so I'm asking you to stick with me. It will be worth it. Let's not lose sight of the forest for all the trees. All who are saying, all we're saying here is by the scriptures is that God predicted sometime after 490 years had passed from the time of the release of Judah from Babylonian captivity that a 1,000 year millennial rule of Messiah on earth will bring in six wonderful realities I've just gone through. Our God is always right on time. Verse 25, so you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. God said to Daniel in this verse 25 that the 490 years in question would begin ticking off God's prophetic clock and what would kick it off would be the issuing of a decree granting the Jews permission to go back to Jerusalem to reconstruct the fallen, dilapidated walls of the Jewish city. Both of our children are adopted as I think most of you know by now In Ontario, Canada, where we adopted both Joanna and JD, adoption law works like this. A birth mother who wants to place her child for adoption is not allowed to sign an adoption order until at least eight days have transpired since she gives birth to the child. Then when she signs the adoption order, Ontario law says that she then has 21 days wherein she can change her mind about the adoption for any reason and the adoption is finished. So you can imagine that when in these two cases of our precious children when their respective birth mothers signed this clock started ticking in our minds. 21 days, 20 days, 19 days. And then when the last day struck midnight into the 21st, 22nd day, we celebrated, we prayed, we gave thanks to God because the children were ours. God says the ticking down of the prophetic clock will begin with the issuing, the date of the issuing of a decree to free the Jews who were in Babylonian captivity to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city. 
And so history tells us that it was Persian King Artaxerxes who issued such a decree that gave permission to the Jews to start rebuilding Jerusalem and its walls in 445 B.C. By the way, you can read all about King Artaxerxes' decree to allow the Jews to go back to rebuild their city in Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2. And so now to go further into this to see just how amazingly precise Jesus' return on the Palm Sunday on the coal was with respect to prophetic dating, we go back to verse 25 one more time. So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. So let's see, seven plus 62 weeks equals 69 weeks, and 69 multiplied by seven years is 483 years. Now watch this. I keep saying this because I know it's intricate. Stick with me. In ancient Bible times, the standard year was 360 days, not 365 days. Brother Cates was getting into some of that in his presentation. The ancient calendar system was, in Bible times, used by the peoples of what are now the countries of India, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Greece, Italy, Central America, and China, and Israel. Now, we know from history, outside of the Bible, we know that King Artaxerxes decreed to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem to start rebuilding its walls on March the 14th, 445 B.C. March 14th, 445 B.C. And when a 360-day year is used and the 483-year period is added to March 14th, 445 B.C., the date it yields, the precise date it yields, the only date it can yield is the date of April 6th, 32 A.D. April 6th, 32 A.D., and that, my friends and family is the precise date of the first Palm Sunday. Precise. God is always right on time. He's never late. Jesus rode into Jerusalem down the descent by the world's largest Jewish cemetery on the left into the Kidron Valley into Jerusalem on a full of a donkey, right on time. The very day that God had given to Daniel, centuries before. Our God is always right in time. Take encouragement in that. Take hope in that. Take pleasure in that. 550 years before Jesus was even born, God predicted the very day that his son would ride into Jerusalem to present himself as an official way to Israel to be her long-awaited Messiah King. And so they lined the streets with a national symbol of patriotism for Israel. In Canada, we would say, The maple leaf off the maple tree is our 
rallying cry, our national symbol of unity and patriotism. But for them, in the, as Israeli Jews, it was the palm. And so Jesus is riding on the full of a donkey right on time according to Old Testament prophecy and the kids and the adults and the teenagers lined the road with these palm branches and said, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now, save now. The problem was that the majority of those who lined the road and yelled, Hosanna, save now, were thinking about Rome's boot and heel on their throats, and they wanted political salvation. Like Simon the Zealot, they wanted deliverance from Rome because they didn't really care about deliverance from sin, because to them, sin wasn't as big a problem as Roman oppression. That's how, within days, they could shift from save now to crucify him. Their agenda was more important to them than almighty God's agenda. And so our God that is always right on time We must, when we look at Palm Sunday, April 6th, A.D. 32, we must see the precision of that timing not as a coincidence, but as something that God caused. Not as serendipitous, but something that was chalked up to God's sovereignty. Not luck, but what God had laid out well ahead. Not random, but regimented in the will and plan of God. Not forced, but fulfilled prophecy. Some in the parade crowd that day realized what was going on because they knew Zechariah the prophet, chapter 9, verse 9, predicted that Israel would expect and should expect to identify her king by seeing him riding into Jerusalem, riding on the foal of a donkey. By the way, one of the churches I pastored at the time of 9-11, we had a brother in the congregation who was a missionary and part of a missionary family and grew up in Muslim countries. And when it was brought to light that the uh, attackers on the Twin Towers were Muslim, we had a special prayer meeting at the night, of, uh, the night shortly after 9-11 attacks. And I'll never forget when, he, when Mick Reinier stood up in our assembly and said, you know, folks, some would have us to believe that Christianity and Islam shares a lot in common, but he said, you couldn't be further from the truth. He said, you want to know the fundamental difference between Islam and Christianity? Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse. Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. I'll never forget that. The people in that first Palm Sunday crowd who recognized that fact shouted, Hosanna, save now, and they understood this was Messiah. Those who shouted, Hosanna, save now, who wanted only political deliverance, were gravely disappointed, and then in anger and disappointment, 
and in accord with prophecy called for Jesus Christ crucifixion, even after Pilate said, I find no fault with this man, even after Pilate offered them Barabbas, the worst notorious criminal for release, they did not accept that. They wanted Jesus. They wanted, they let Barabbas go. They wanted Jesus crucified. So let me ask you in concluding this Palm Sunday sermon, do you think it logical? Do you think it logical that God, who was on time for the first Palm Sunday to the day after the passage of 173,880 days, do you think he could be on time for you? Whatever you're concerned about, could this God of Palm Sunday who's the same yesterday, today, and forever, could you bank on him being on time for you? It's no accident that we're in this sanctuary at this moment because the God who is always right on time ensures that we are always right on time. And he's meeting with us in a supernatural way, in a precious way, in a personal way. What is it for which you are impatient with God? Maybe your spouse doesn't even know you're impatient with that matter. But you do. When you lay your head on the pillow, you know what you're impatient with God about. And maybe it's gotten to the point for you and your impatience with God's timing that you've started to put up fences in some kind of a futile attempt to fence God out of your life. This would be the time to tell God that's wrong. This would be the time to bring that issue, that matter, that situation that you have been impatient with God about to the foot of the cross and to say, oh God, forgive me for my impatience. Thank you that you're always right on time. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to expect from you. I'm going to wait on you. I'm not going to get ahead of you. I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. I believe that you are on time with Palm Sunday, and you will be on time with X, Y, Z in my life. I'll leave that between you and the Lord. Heavenly Father, If any of us came into the sanctuary this morning with secret and hidden impatience with you, may we confess that to be sin and may we trust you that you are on time. May the confidence we can have in your punctuality calm our hearts, quell our anxieties, Bolster our obedience. Lighten our steps. Deepen our study of your word. Lord, in some cases, one of the great graces you are going to provide for us who have been patient with you 
who have come to a place of confession and repentance in these moments, one of the graces you're going to afford us is we're going to run into people soon that will tell us about how you have been on time in their lives to encourage us. Oh God, thank you for your punctuality. And we give you the honor and the glory that is due your name together. And God's people said, amen.